from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. This doesn't come out of that era. This statue's only 13 years old. What do we know about it, it being commissioned and why they decided to honor this guy so much more recently? My son's friend said, well, it really seems to me like if a statue's going to go up, the person should do more good than bad. The fundamental political dynamics in Edwardsville are very conservative. If anything, he was kind of average. Hmm. And, but, but unfortunately, the, 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 average, the average attitude was quite racist and quite brutal. I'm not trying to explain or excuse Edwards, you know, we're, we're all kind of products of our time and sometimes victims of our times and our perceptions. Why should we continue to pay homage to the white colonization movement? I'm Sarah Fenske. One year ago, the statue of Christopher Columbus that had long stood on a pedestal in Tower Grove Park was taken down. Orders came from the park's board of commissioners, who concluded that the Italian explorer had come to symbolize, quote, a historical disregard for indigenous peoples and cultures and destruction of their communities. Last week, another local statue came off its pedestal. The 13-year-old statue depicts Ninian Edwards, from whom Edwardsville, Illinois, takes its name. And it had come under fire from a group called Our Edwardsville. Our production assistants, Paola Rodriguez, stopped by Edwardsville City Plaza last week. It's a very small park in that suburb's downtown area with a fountain, a flag, and not much else. She met a group of a half dozen Our Edwardsville members there, and they told her they were happy about the statue's removal. Hi, my name's Ezra Temko. Um, I'm one of the co-leaders with Our Edwardsville, and we're here today just to enjoy this space with the statue not present right now. It's been interesting with this statue in particular because people have tried to differentiate his racism from Confederate statues, right? And there is a difference in that this was put up a dozen years ago, and so the timing's a little different in that, but that also kind of talks a little more about, well, how historical is this statue? Again, we're, we want to remember our history and we want to do it in a way that's not honoring his racist legacy here in our downtown. We've got this bigger world movement happening after the murder of George Floyd. What's happening in our community? What's our smaller, what are our symbols in our community? And uh, this was one of them that we identified. We've gotten the city to talk about these things, to consider, to take it off the pedestal, which is a small step, but it's a step nonetheless. Right now, with it not even being here, it's so relaxing. Um, every time I drive by it, I tense up because I know that it's there and, and that, I, um, that, it's a, that it's something that I so clearly see as a, a problem. Um, so now having it not here is, is just a very, very nice, relaxing, um, positive but small step. Now, those are members of the group Our Edwardsville, Emily Klingensmith and Ezra Tomko, speaking last week to production assistants Paolo Rodriguez. But the statue is not gone. It's merely being moved off the pedestal and to a less prominent place within that same park. And so the debate continues. And joining us today to talk about it is John Parkin. He's the Madison County Historical Museum and Archival Library Superintendent. John, welcome. 
Thank you. And we're also joined today by Anthony Cheeseborough. He's an associate professor of history at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Anthony, welcome. Nice to be here also. So, John, we need a crash course here in Ninian Edwards' life story. He's not originally from Illinois. How did he make his way to this area? Well, he grew up in a time when we were expanding westward as a nation. Uh, born into a fairly prominent family in Maryland, he found himself in Kentucky early on and, in fact, uh, was elected, I believe, to their legislature before he could even vote. Um, this is when he was like 19 or 20. And you could say that he uh, kind of honed his skills as a lawyer and uh, a politician and judge in Kentucky, and then he became part of uh, that westward movement where people were seeking opportunity. Uh, and there was already something of a folkway or a chain migration between Virginia and Kentucky along the Ohio into southern Illinois, which was established by uh, people like the men who fought with George Rogers Clark, mm. uh, who secured the old Northwest Territory for America during the uh, uh, War of Independence. And so combination of following the flow to a new land of opportunity and probably having some good connections that made it possible, you know, kind of grease the treads. Yeah, I came across an interesting quote that uh, uh, you might find uh, apropos. Edwards consciously positioned himself in the select class of men who dominated Kentucky and later Illinois politics. Mm. And I, I think you could say that for a variety of people. And you've said that it might be a little strong to say he actually founded Edwardsville. How did this town in particular come to be named for him? Uh, I believe the first permanent resident was a man named Thomas Kirkpatrick, who uh, came to the area in 1805. And uh, he set up a mill and he had a dog trot uh, cabin, which would periodically serve as the first courthouse for uh, judges riding the circuit. And uh, during the War of 1812, there was a fort uh, built northwest of what would be Edwardsville. And at the time, initially it was called Camp Edwards. But then during the war, it was renamed uh, Fort Russell after the man who commanded the uh, territorial rangers. So I think when it got to the point where Edwardsville was in essence founded and platted, and I think Kirkpatrick was key to that, uh, he decided he wanted to keep Edwards' name kind of, you know, current keep in that it, keep area. Keep it prominent. Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost analogous to, you know, Cincinnati, which used to be known as Washington City. That's a story for another day. <laughs> uh, but but it, you know, during the War of 1812, Edwards... Uh, uh, at times governed the, the territory from his saddle. And at one t point in October of 1812, and I think maybe a second time, he participated in expeditions up to the Lake Peoria area to uh, try and uh, be proactive, I guess you could say, in uh, keeping what would have then been seen as the Indian menace at bay. Okay. So this, too, is part of his legacy, is, yes. is the treatment of Native Americans. And, Anthony, we know the big issue of that time was slavery. How did Ninian Edwards fall on this? Well, Ninian Edwards was actually very representative 
of a large segment of the settlers of Southern Illinois. I mean, I really think when you talk about Illinois, especially Southern Illinois, uh, the word Southern really should be prominent in the description uh, because, I mean, I, I, I currently live in Collinsville, but at one time when I first moved into the area, I lived in Edwardsville. And one of the interesting things I just noticed walking around in my neighborhood was going by old graveyards and looking at the headstones. And they would say so-and-so moved here from Georgia, so-and-so moved here from Virginia. People moved from South Carolina. Uh, Ninian Edwards was from Maryland. And, you know, although nowadays uh, people tend to think of Maryland more as an eastern state, but Maryland, uh, especially the Chesapeake Bay region, the, uh, uh, the uh, oh gosh, I forgot the part, the uh, Eastern Shore region, uh, culturally is about as southern as you get. Hmm. And uh, the Chesapeake Bay region in particular is a part of, uh, is, is kind of new, unique in the history of slavery in that it was an area that tended to have a surplus slave population. You know, one of the things about slavery is that slavery tends Slave societies tend not to reproduce naturally, and this is not a surprising thing because slaves work very hard. They're not; they were not fed particularly well, and these are not situations that tend to favor a lot of natural births. Mm-hmm. But the Chesapeake Bay area tended to have a really large slave population, and so much of America, especially once the overseas slave trade became illegal in 1810, much of that. Much of the African-American population, to tell you the truth, really all of the African-American population of people who are not uh, descendants of recent immigrants have roots in Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. And so it's not surprising that a Maryland person would come here and want to bring slaves. Uh, And so what happened was that the Northwest Territory was originally meant to not be a slaveholding territory, but exceptions were made for indentured servants. And so what we see is that uh, slavery continued in Illinois under color of indentured servitude. And Ninian Edwards was a practitioner of that. And he was also was on record as being a slave dealer. He, there are records of him selling uh, his slaves, in particular to people in Missouri. And when you say that he was doing this under the pretext of indentured servitude, was this just being uh, cute with the terms or was this really something where people were able to get their freedom under this system? Uh, You had some people who got their freedom. I mean, uh, another very famous Edward in Edwardsville was a man by the name of Edward Coles, uh, who was from Virginia. And his father was a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson. And he actually wanted to free his slaves in Virginia, but the laws in Virginia prevented him from freeing his slaves. And so he sought out uh, Edwardsville as an area in the Northwest Territory where he could free his slaves. Hmm. And so you and so there were people who freed slaves. Um, and so, you know, Edward Coles, uh, actually, there's a plaque for him uh, in, a, in a graveyard before you get into Edwardsville proper. Uh, close to the SIUE campus, and so he's another person. He's a, he, he's another person who's prominently memorialized in Edwardsville, also. And so there were people who were freed. And did Ninian Edwards? Did he ever free his slaves? Not that I'm aware of. You know, the whole issue of slavery, or pseudo slavery, is really interesting. I mean, I I grew up in Illinois and was always taught Illinois was a free state. But I don't think it was. And you could correct me on this. Uh, 1854 or 56 that the Illinois Supreme Court outlawed indentured servanthood. Hmm. But even before then, there were you know various uh, 
iterations of black codes and things like that with complex formulas like, you know, you, you could have an indentured slave for up until a certain age if they were male or female. And, you know, but it's kind of an honor system where you have to trust your master, your owner to say, oh, it's your birthday. Goodbye. You know, and, and it, it's almost like a... a a version of don't ask, don't tell. I think there were a lot of people who just quietly allowed slavery to continue. Hmm. Uh, and the sentiment, because that region was so heavily leavened with people from the South, you know, I'm not going to disrupt the boat for my neighbor, so he won't disrupt it for me. Of course, over time, because of migration patterns, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the migration from the South into the Southern Illinois. You know, with the Erie, Erie Canal and later on railroads and, and better lake traffic, you get a lot of northerners into the northern part of the state. And and Illinois really is kind of, um, you know, our nation in small. You know, Chicago is as far north as New York City, mm-hmm. and Cairo, Illinois, is as far south as Richmond. And you've got, you know, kind of, you know, at least at one point, gradations in there of, of just, attitudes and values, you know, obviously abolitionists were much stronger in the North than they were in the South. We're talking today about the statue that's honoring the eponymous Ninian Edwards, that's for whom Edwardsville is named. Our guests include John Parkin, he's the Madison County Historical Museum and Archival Library Superintendent, as well as Anthony Cheeseborough, he's an Associate Professor of History at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're talking today about the controversy surrounding the statue of Ninian Edwards. That's the man for whom Edwardsville is named. He was the first territorial governor of Illinois, the only territorial governor of Illinois. He was also a man who held slaves. And our guests today are John Parkin, uh, the Madison County Historical Museum and Archival Library Superintendent, and Anthony Cheeseboro, an Associate Professor of History at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. So we spoke a bit about how he was using these indentured uh, servant laws in order to continue to propagate slavery there in Illinois. Uh, But John also mentioned that he had had sort of a fraught relationship with Native Americans. Anthony, what do we know about that? Well, when thinking about Ninian Edwards and Native Americans, I think one of the easiest ways to get a handle on him is to realize that he was roughly contemporaneous with Andrew Jackson. He was about 12 years older than Andrew Jackson. And uh, he had attitudes that were quite similar. And frankly, his attitudes of viewing Native Americans as a nuisance, as a threat, uh, these were very, very common attitudes. Now, in some ways, he was a bit harsher. I mean, if, if you look at his uh, interactions, uh, you know, when he was fighting against Native Americans in the area around Peoria, uh, he, he was pretty brutal. Um, I mean, now, there had been some raids on some settler populations, but at the same time, he very much uh, encouraged some of the tr- traditional 
practices against Native Americans like scalps because scalping, because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, there were scalping laws passed in colonial America back in the 18th century in which uh, colonists could get paid money for each scalp of a Native American that they brought in. And so uh, he did engage in that kind of behavior. Uh, uh, he did encourage, uh, you know, what we could basically consider extrajudici- extrajudicial executions of Native Americans. And so his treatment was brutal. But uh, I always have to say that, you know, we can never forget the fact that this man was governor. He was senator. He went on and became went on and became governor once Illinois became a state. And uh, I think that us looking in the 21st century, uh, we have to acknowledge that he was brutal. But at the same time, I think it's very tricky. We don't want to make him out to be uh, the villain, because if we make him the villain, then we pretty much let everybody else in Illinois at that time off the hook uh, when, if anything, he was kind of average. Hmm. And but but unfortunately, the, the, the average the average attitude was quite racist and quite brutal. We uh, we reached out to the Belleville Historical Society. They gave him a star on their Walk of Fame and we reached out to get their thoughts on this controversy. Larry Betts, who's the president of the Belleville Historical Society, he said this in a statement. As an organization, we have adopted a sense that history is not here for us to like or dislike, but to learn from. If it offends us, we should work hard to not repeat it. It's not ours to try to reverse. Part of our guidelines to choose persons we should admit to our Walk of Fame is to, quote, honor people who have made a significant contribution to our city. We strongly feel that the positive contributions Edwards made to the early development of Belleville fits that criteria. John, this was a man of his time. This was a brutal time, as Anthony was just saying. He behaved in ways that, that a lot of us would judge him for, but some of us are here today because of, of what he did. Well, and if people were honest, if they lived 200 years ago and had this, you know the same kind of um, baggage or viewed the world through the same kind of lenses that people did back then. Uh, they wouldn't have the, the sensibilities or the sense of, of, of right or wrong that we have today. Hmm. Um, you know, when I was teaching history, I uh, would often try and, and have the students understand that perception is reality, regardless of whether that perception is accurate or not. Uh, there was a uh, shop owner in St. Louis during the war who wrote home frequently to an uncle who had kind of staked him to his shop on, you know, like every week. And every week there was some information about what's happening in Illinois. And I remember one letter he says, you know, when the Illinois River ice breaks up, we expect an armada of a thousand war canoes to descend on St. Louis. Well, I've done a fair amount of research, and I seriously doubt there were a thousand war canoes in all of the upper Midwest. Yeah. But that was the perception at the time. And, and when, when you read about the depredations that were committed by both uh, Euro-Americans moving into the area and Native Americans who were trying to defend their homeland, uh, when you start reading about these, uh, you realize that there's really only maybe half a dozen, but at the time... As stories get repeated, you know, they, they spread like a prairie fire and uh, details get distorted and, and what might have been half a dozen or ten documented depredations on either side grows into dozens, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds. And so then people's reactions are, 
to what they perceive. And so I'm not trying to explain or excuse Edwards. You know, we're, we're all kind of products of our time and sometimes victims of our times and our perceptions. Anthony, something I find myself wondering about so many of these statues that have come down in recent years, um, it turns out they are the product of a pushback of, you know, the end of the Civil War, um, the Daughters of the American Revolution not liking the way things were going, put up these statues to this glorious past that maybe never was. This doesn't come out of that era. This statue is only 13 years old. What do we know about it, it being commissioned and why they decided to honor this guy so much more recently? Well, the fact of the matter is that, you know, Edwardsville is kind of an interesting town. I mean, I, I don't live there. I live in Collinsville, which, you know, has its own history. But uh, Edwardsville has kind of a nice uh, college town image. But the fundamental political dynamics in Edwardsville are very conservative. And I'm not surprised that Nenin Edwards was picked for uh, recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you look at a lot of the work of, uh, of lo- you know, kind of local writing and, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, there tends to be a, a kind of glamorization of the uh, frontier er- era. And there also tends to be kind of a um, kind of explaining away of some of, the, uh, of some of the more unpleasant aspects of it. So I'm not surprised that it was put up in 2008. I'm, and, and, but as you say, it does not meet the pattern that you normally associate with statues. I'm, I'm from the Deep South mm-hmm. originally. I, I was born in Florida, grew up in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, I every time I went to town, I, I went downtown, I, I saw old uh, Confederate uh, veteran statues that had been built. Or, you know, even, not, even at State House in South Carolina, you have a, a, a big prominent statue of Ben Pitchfork Tillman. Uh, who was the redeemer, you know, what, what they refer to as the redeemers, the people who destroyed the Reconstruction governments, uh, you know, going in, you know, at, at, the, at the, you know, in, from the 1870s up until, in South Carolina's case, really up until about 1895 before they got rid of all the black congressmen. And, you know, you, you, you still see these people being venerated. And so, as I said before, you know, if you cut beneath the surface, the culture in Edwardsville, in a lot of ways, is still quite Southern. And so, uh, a statue venerating Ninny and Edwards, you know, does fit that pattern. We heard earlier Can from... Can I jump in here really quick? Real quick. Okay. On my way walking up here, um, I thought of a great analogy. Uh, John Ford's uh, film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, is about, you know, a greenhorn, tenderfoot, you know, arriving on the frontier and through his actions ends up being this, you know, the senator from the state and... You know, and so it's kind of a rags to riches, come to the frontier and, and make yourself. And, and you know, in, in many respects, people like Edwards probably fits into that mold. And we have a tendency to romanticize, as you were saying, uh, in popular culture. And then that that mental image is hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And even though, as you guys say, this was a pretty connected guy. Oh, yeah. This wasn't the penniless man moving no. out here. But <laughs> I do want to play one more clip. This comes from Emily Klingensmith. She's a member of the R. Edwardsville group that wants this statue down. And she shared her thoughts about the statue with Paolo Rodriguez. Uh, my son's friend said, well, it really seems to me like if a statue's going to go up, the person should do more good than bad. And I said, well, what does good and bad you know, that's subjective. Um, And he agreed with that. And so then we kind of talked through some things. And I think good to me is good for everybody. What good 
could someone do that could outweigh owning other humans? I don't think that there is. I, I just don't think that, that there is that. And it, it really also speaks to the broader white colonization movement and what, why should we continue to pay homage to the white colonization movement. That, again, is Emily Klingensmith. She's with the group Our Edwardsville that wants the statue not just off the pedestal, but out of City Plaza entirely. John, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that argument she's making there. Uh, well, I, I know Emily and uh, in, enjoy talking with her a lot. She's a fabulous person. Uh, if the criteria is that the person does good for everybody, we'll never see another statue, mm. if you think about it. I mean, I... There's very, I can't think of anybody personally that fits that bill. But let me, let me, uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people talk about is teachable moment. And, um, you know, I had two ancestors, one who fought at Gettysburg and one at Vicksburg in the Union Army. And I'm not a fan of people who raised the flag of rebellion against our republic. Um, there was a general named Nathaniel Lyons who secured St. Louis for the Union early in the war and then led an army to uh, basically try and keep most of Missouri in in the Union. And he died at Wilson's Creek, which was, I believe, the second battle of the Civil War, major battle after Gettysburg. He used to have a statue in Forest Park. But when a widow of a Confederate veteran was asked to donate money to a local school, Apparently, she said, not while that damn Yankee's there. (laughs) So they moved his statue, I think in the early 20th century, about the time the Confederate monument was built, down to the base of Arsenal Street, because he was the commander of the Arsenal in 1861. And I've often wondered, you know, if we had, once again, I'm not a fan of the Confederacy, left the Confederate monument in place and brought his statue up and create a plaza that would interpret, you know, how over time we have memorialized different people and events and how our perceptions have changed, that that would be a great teachable moment. Uh, but I'm not enough of a good writer or thinker to know how to do that with any to put that forward. taste. Well, Anthony, we just have a, a minute left here, but I want to I wanna get your thought on this. We've heard John's take on what should happen here. What would you like to see happen with this statue? There's this group that wants it down entirely. Did you fall in their camp? My natural inclination is to not get rid of statues. Uh, I think, obviously, there are cases where they, where they need to go. I mean, I can understand... Uh, you know, countries that have fought wars or whatever, one side loses, and especially that side has been committed accused of atrocities, you know, getting rid of it. Uh, and in the case of Edwards, uh, you know, his behavior is, is is quite reprehensible in a lot of ways. But as I said before, he was very much a rep, uh, representative of his time. And I really favor putting plaques, putting information out there, saying who this person was, what this person did. The unvarnished truth. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, you know, if you just have a statue up there, oh, he's a hero. If you have a plaque, then people, if, if, if they're willing to take the time to read it, then they see that this is a complicated figure. Now, the problem with that is that people tend not to want to take the time. 
but you know there's no substitute for learning I mean you know that's why I'm in the line of work I'm in mm-hmm. and that's why we're talking about Ninian Edwards today I want to thank both of you for sharing this history it's been so interesting to learn about the early days of Illinois and and this figure so Anthony Cheesboro Associate Professor of History at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville thank you and John Parkin Madison County Historical Museum and Archival Library Superintendent thank you St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.